The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. How are you? Good, Father. Thank you for being here tonight. Father, you've discussed at length on this program your views concerning the topics of Francis and the papacy and Sedevicantism, and if I could attempt to briefly sum up your position on these matters... It seems that you say the modernist actions of the post-Vatican II popes create a real and objective doubt as to the legitimacy of their papacy. You, however, being a simple priest, do not possess the authority to make an infallible pronouncement on this matter. You cannot say one way or another uh, if Francis is the pope or not the pope, uh, as, it, as the case may be. However, you do say... Yeah, give an opinion on the matter, but that's about all, really. Okay, right. But uh, you, you do say that, since there exists this real and objective doubt, that the authority of these post-Vatican II popes is doubtful and therefore non-binding. Uh, so, Father, I'd like to ask, where do you get that idea? Because we have had multiple questions, uh, the, the same exact question from multiple viewers now, where they say, okay, I can understand how there's, how there's a doubt as to the legitimacy of these papacies, but it seems that the much safer course of action is to continue to follow the teachings and commands and be obedient to these popes, since there has been no official pronouncement one way or another on the matter. So is there some sort of church teaching that you could cite which states that a doubtful authority is is a non-binding authority. Uh, actually, there is. Yes, yeah. traditionally, uh, there, there's a phrase that is accepted uh, throughout the centuries, and that is "Papa dubius, Papa nullus." Uh, it sums up the idea that a doubtful pope is not is no pope. And what they mean by that is uh, that, in terms of exercising authority, a pope who's whose election as Pope and acceptance of the papacy, uh, a Pope, in other words, whose, whose papacy is, is in doubt, effectively is not the Pope, is not a, not a Pope in practice in the sense that uh, he, uh, he cannot command um, in such a way that his commands are binding as long as the authority behind the command is doubtful. Um, now, one has to remember there are different kinds of doubt. There's a negative doubt, which is based upon no evidence. It's just kind of a suspicion that maybe this is so, okay? Uh, but when you have an actual uh, a reason, and uh, a reason which of itself, uh, if, for example, proven true, would definitely have consequences, um, then that doubt has to be dispelled. That, that is what is called an objective doubt, okay? Uh, a subjective doubt is when a person just has his own personal uh, uncertainty about something um, because he, he has come up with some reason of his own, okay? There's a negative doubt where there's no actual reason. He just suspects it might be so, okay? 
But if you were to ask him, well, give me a reason why it might be so, he would just say, well, it just, it just might be so. It could be this way, right? He can't really give you a, a rational argument in favor of it, right? But uh, an objective doubt is based upon reasons that um, are rational, right? Based upon facts. When you, when you bring together facts and the principles that the Church herself has given to us, um, then you, you, you can make a, a, an argument that is a rational argument, the conclusion of which would be that, well, yeah, there, there is a question here, or perhaps it would remove all doubt and say that, yes, uh, this would render uh, the election of someone uh, uh, as Pope invalid, you know, illegitimate. Um, there are all kinds of arguments one could make with regard to elections of popes um, people have in history. Um, the Church herself has explained at times what would make a papal election invalid. Um, people since Vatican II and the changes to the electoral process um, have made arguments from various various points of view, uh, that the changes in the rules governing the election, for example, of the Supreme Pontiff, uh, changed uh, rather dramatically and drastically after Vatican II. Uh, the number of electors down from two-thirds majority to simple a simple majority, one-half of the electors plus one vote, right? Um, and then it was changed back some years later, but not until after a number of elections. At least a couple of elections took place. But then also the packing of the College of Cardinals by essentially doubling the number of cardinals um, who could be named, and the, then, then the exclusion of the cardinals 80 years and over, 80 years all and over, and saying they have no right to vote anymore. You know? This was manifestly a, a chicanery, of, uh, perpetrated by the modernists to pack the court, uh, the, the electoral uh, process, uh, very much like we'd call gerrymandering in our own day, you know, and um, um, it, it, was, it was simply a, a ploy of the modernists to make sure that they get modernists selected, okay? okay? So, I mean, there are those who would argue, well, this would, this would make the whole thing very suspect, okay? I haven't explored those reasons as providing a, a, a grounds for questioning this. Uh, um, there are others, uh, they may well, very well uh, provide a, a, uh, an objective doubt about the validity of these elections of the modernist pontiffs of the Novus Ordo after Vatican II because they, they might well constitute a uh, a serious compromising of the electoral process to the point where it is very doubtful. I don't know. I haven't looked into that yet myself. Because I don't think it's necessary. I mean, there are others who argue, well, these men uh, are not popes, could not be popes because they don't have the faith. And uh, unless you have the faith, then you can't belong to the church. And if you can't belong to the church, you can't be the head of the church on earth. Okay. And there are those who make that argument, and I think they make a strong argument that the post-conciliar pontiffs of the Novus Ordo do not have the faith, especially in Francis's case. I think that's a pretty, I think it's pretty obvious in, in Francis's case because of the words out of his own mouth, you know. 
Now again, you know, proving formal heresy is, is not as easy as just establishing that a statement is heretical on the face of it, you know. You know, it's formal heresy requires that the person recognize it as being heretical, contrary to the the uh, defined dogma of the Catholic faith, and one is still holding it and pronouncing it anyway. And, um, you know, modernists are very oily and sort of, um, they're hard to pin down and very confusing, so it might be a little difficult to pursue that uh, to a conclusion that everybody could accept. Um, There's a reasoning process behind that, you know, you prove that, okay, he's making a heretical statement here against the defined dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, and this is exactly what he, he knows. He knows that he is denying doctrines of the faith that have been defined, and for which the Church has declared one anathema, for example. He knows that, he's formally making that statement, but then you go into the argument, but does that make it impossible for him to be the Pope, you know, and then you start the argument from that point of view. And uh, it gets to the point where you can go around and around and around, and by the time you're done, um, it's, it's, it's an argument not of authority, but of reason, human reason. And again, arguments of human reason are always fallible, mm-hmm. you know? So uh, one can say, well, I'm convinced, but cannot say, because I'm convinced, you all have to be convinced with me, uh, that we all agree on the same thing, because I, I see it to be so. Um, that doesn't make one the magisterium of the Catholic Church, the fact that he's convinced himself of this, this side or the other. But um, personally, I, I, I find a very strong argument, in my own mind anyway, from the fact that uh, Francis has, has already explained what he considers the, the role of the Pope, the, the office of the papacy to be. He's explained this after this uh, ordinary synod on the family. Uh, he told exactly what he saw his role as being, how he wanted a synodal church, and uh, that basically a synodal church will listen to the lay people, get their take on doctrine and moral principle, what it should be at that time in history. The bishops then distill it, present that distillation to him, Francis, in his position, and he then comes up with the formula which expresses the doctrine as it has been discerned from the grassroots and the people. Okay, This is the quintessential modernist papacy. This is, this is, this is the... the the you know you have to say like this is the uh, apotheosis of pope according to the moderns you know um, this is this concept of the church you know um, as a whole and uh, of the pope in particular and uh, this 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 is diametrically opposed to the office of the papacy as the church has defined it to be as Christ established it to be. And uh, so, as I have mentioned before, Tom, uh, essential to one ex- being becoming the supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church is the formal acceptance of the office. But this involves an understanding of what the office is. Right? One can be totally ignorant and not have any concept of what the papacy is and accept it, and one could argue, well, okay, he's accepted the office insofar as he 
knows what it is, at least he knows how to spell papacy. You know? But in Francis's case, it's not that simple. Um, he has a, a contrary, to, contrary idea, where he actually accepts an idea that is explicitly contrary to the teaching of the Church about the role of the papacy, an idea that excludes the true Catholic idea, as something that he rejects, okay? And so I think one has to realize that there's a serious doubt about whether or not he could even accept an office he doesn't even believe in. And, um, but anyway, as I say, I, I believe there is an objective doubt uh, about this papacy, and uh, therefore, in practice, the church would say, and again, this is what you're asking here, what authority is that, uh, is behind that idea that if the authority, if the legitimacy of a man as the Supreme Pontiff we, I mean, we know he is, in fact, the Supreme Pontiff of the Novus Ordo Church, okay? That's a fact. We all accept that. Sure, he's the Pope of the Novus Ordo, okay? No one's disputing that fact. Uh, the question is, can he be, at the same time, the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church, okay? And the Novus Ordo is modernism incarnate, right? That's the religion. Uh, the, the Novus Ordo, modernism is their, is their faith, and um, and... The Novus Ordo is their religion. Okay, it's their practice of modernism. So um, uh, when I say that, I mean all the changes that have come in. Okay, have been motivated by these modernist ideas. So uh, you know, one could argue whether or not one could be the supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church at the same time that he is universally recognized and portrays himself as the Pope of the Novus Ordo. Okay. Uh, as the, the leader of the world's modernists and the leader of the world's Catholics, you know, which Pope Pius X said, are, they're totally antithetical to each other because the one is the complete denial of the other. You know, you take it to their logical conclusions anyway. So, uh, in any case, I think there is a strong argument that there is a, an objective doubt about the papacy of Francis. Um, as far as that translating into um, the fact that, that that whatever authority uh, he pretends to have is uh, in fact null and void in practice, that we're not bound by what he says, right? Uh, again, I think the church's principle, reflex principles, that doubtful laws do not bind. Mm -hmm. If the authority behind the doubt, if the authority behind the law is doubtful, necessarily, then the law itself is doubtful. And Father, I'd like to point out that it seems that that idea of, a, of uh, something that's doubtful being uh, illegitimate, it seems that, that that's perfectly in line with the Church's teaching, and you can apply that to the sacraments, where a doubtful sacrament mm -hmm. must be avoided. And I mm -hmm. believe that uh, it's actually, I could be wrong, but I believe it's actually a mortal sin to, re to knowingly receive a doubtful sacrament, but could we say that it's a sin to follow this uh, doubtful authority of Francis? It seems like it seems that it's a, a perfectly <clears throat> safe thing to do. Um, it, it's only doubtful. It's never been declared as illegitimate formally, so it just seems that it's that it's only doubtful. So how could we say that someone sins by following this authority? In other words, could one without sin uh, follow a a doubtful mm -hmm. command? Okay, right. Well, in the end, Tom, it all depends on whether it's consistent with the Catholic religion. Okay. So if something is commanded that is injurious to the Catholic faith, 
then obviously, regardless of who tells you, mm -hmm. even if, as St. Paul says, a, an angel from heaven comes and tells you to believe a different gospel, anathema, you know, hold him to be anathema. You have to reject that completely, regardless, even if it's someone whose authority is not in doubt, if he commands something that is injurious to souls and the faith, you have to disobey. It wouldn't even be disobedience. St. Robert Bellarmine says that. The great champion of papal authority says it explicitly. That a pope, and he says, if it is a, a pope himself, he doesn't even question whether the man is the pope, would command a uh, something that is injurious to souls and, and uh, damaging to the church, that a Catholic must refuse to obey such a command and must try to impede the execution of his will. But Father, Stop others from obeying him, too. What if, what if the commands are not injurious to okay, the Okay, well, that's the, the question that you're asking okay. here. Well, again, you know, that can be discussed in the sense that would it be injurious to obey the commands of, let's say, a Francis, even if what he commanded in itself was not intrinsically evil, mm -hmm. okay? What if it seemed indifferent? For example, what if, what if Francis were to um, stand up and say, look, we all have to fast and abstain this coming Wednesday for world peace, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, now, in itself, that's not a bad thing. If one were actually giving Francis uh, even the benefit of the doubt, then one would say, okay, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. That requires me to do that because I'd see nothing contrary to the faith in that. Uh, one might say, well, Our Lady of Fatima said we have to do penance and penance and penance and called for penance. And, and for what? For, for the peace in the world, right? Peace of mankind. Uh, she said we have to pray for peace and sacrifice for peace. Right? There's nothing contrary to uh, Our Lady's command there. And uh, as far as fasting and abstinence, I mean, these are traditional practices of the church. <clears throat> so how could one find an objection to that? One would say, well, yes, um, I can not only do that myself, but giving Francis the benefit of the doubt, I probably should require others to do so also, right? If you are really giving the benefit of the doubt. <clears throat> but here's the, here's the problem that I would see with that. I would argue that that, again, is giving legitimacy <clears throat> to uh, basically modernism. Um, you know, I, I heard a, a priest of the Society of St. Pius X telling me that the priests of the Society of St. Pius X give the benefit of the doubt to John Paul II, Francis, and so on. And then when I asked this very question, what if uh, they, one of them were to command fasting and abstinence on a Wednesday for world peace? And his answer was, I would not do it, and I would not tell anyone else to do it. And I said, well, I don't understand. You said you were going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I just know that if he says we're going to fast and abstain for world peace, what he means is ecumenism. <laughs> <clears throat> That's what he really means. And I said to him, well, you're interpreting his words in that way. <clears throat> but how is that giving him the benefit of the doubt? Yeah. It seems to be you're not giving him the benefit of the doubt. You're, you're interpreting his words in the worst modernist way. Now, it's not that I disagreed with him. I believe that's what Francis would mean. <clears throat> but I, what I disagreed with is that that is giving him the benefit of the doubt. Because I don't believe the Society of St. Pius X does that. And this good, very good priest, I believe, I have a lot of respect for him, he, but he, 
he was trying, his answer to me, by the way, by the way, was, well, you wouldn't do it. <laughs> and I said, well, that really doesn't prove anything. <laughs> but I said, um, I said, you're right, I wouldn't do it, but that, I'm not claiming to give them the benefit of the doubt either. Exactly. Because the church doesn't give the benefit of the doubt. The church says that if it's doubtful, you can't, that the authority is doubtful. If the authority is doubtful, the command is doubtful. Uh, and furthermore, uh, by the way, that's, that's the fundamental question you were asking at the beginning. If the authority is doubtful, the command is doubtful. And I want to get back to you with that in a future program, hopefully the next program, and actually cite the authorities and explain that, because I think that's a very important question. Perfect. A very good question, and it deserves some good answers, uh, better than I'm prepared to give here now, because I, I'm not going to cite your chapter and verse mm -hmm. of you know, church's teaching on the subject. So I'll, I'll get back to that question. Okay. But what I told the, the uh, dear friend, <clears throat> priest, was um, if I believed that he really was the Supreme Pontiff, I definitely would not only feel obliged to observe that command, but I would tell everybody I knew, you know, that they also were obliged in conscience to observe that command. Um, the fact is, uh, I find the very least I can say is that I find the authority behind any such command doubtful. <clears throat> I find a series of arguments, any one of which I find rather compelling <laughs> uh, against the authority of Francis to command. And, um, and furthermore, I would think that in visiting that command upon people and ordering them to follow this with my understanding of the situation and the danger that he represents, I would not want to encourage anyone <coughs> to feel bound by his commands for fear that they would, they would feel they'd be drawn back into the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> because the individual person <clears throat> is really not in a position to judge these commands as they come one by one and try to discern for himself, is that compromising to the faith? Is it contrary to the faith? Is it compatible with the faith? I mean, the, the, the ultimate practical problem is this. If you were to tell people, well, figure out what commands come from Francis that are according to the faith, which commands are contrary to the faith, and figure out which commands you're supposed to obey, or can can obey, and which uh, uh, commands you can't obey, and which commands fall into kind of this gray area that you could or you couldn't, if you did, depending on whether you wanted to or not. Again, I would think that is so damaging to the very concept of the individual purpose, a person's understanding of the papacy, that that in itself would constitute an attack on their faith. So, uh, again, I think the Society of St. Pius X has gotten into this. They've painted themselves into this corner now, where they're basically telling the people, you know, we've got to figure out what we, what we have to obey, what we can't obey, what we don't have to obey, figure out, you know, what's in the middle, what we can decide whether we want to go along with or not go along with. And in the practical order, I just think they do whatever they please. Uh, and, I, and I don't believe that is the Catholic practice. So that's why I say, no, we, we, we can't be caught between this tradition, Catholic tradition on one side, and Francis on the other, and trying to decide um, 
where Francis's commands might or might not directly contradict Catholic tradition, where they might impinge upon the integrity of the faith, when they might be dangerous for someone. I think we have to decide we're going to follow Catholic tradition because we know that is true. That's the one thing that is certain, okay? All the popes are bound by Catholic tradition. They are subject to it, not the other way around. And uh, so we have to go with what is certain, and that is what is certain. Okay. Okay. Uh, there are those who claim to be traditional. They're not really following Catholic tradition, and that's the, that's the problem we're dealing with. Okay, False traditionalists. But uh, the fact is, we can't be juggling Francis and Catholic tradition at the same time, trying to figure out, well, every time he speaks, we've got to decide now whether or not this is binding, this is not binding, um, this is something we must do, this is something we can do, if we please, this is something we can't do. No, you know, Catholic people cannot be in that position, so I would just tell them that, practically speaking, that is an impossible position to hold. Mm -hmm. this, this is, and a very dangerous position, frankly, in practice. Yeah. This is, uh, this is very, very fascinating discussion, Father. I think it's a great discussion that we need to have. Uh, but, but let's move on to some related questions from our viewers concerning Francis. So we have one uh, <clears throat> viewer who writes in here and says, with Francis now allowing people to be their own judge as to receiving the Eucharist, isn't that an oxymoron since the Eucharist is invalid in the Novus Ordo? Okay, I'm a little puzzled by the use of the word oxymoron there, because an oxymoron is uh, the, the uh, you know placing together two words that contain an implicit contradiction, contradiction mm -hmm. like pretty ugly. You say somebody's pretty ugly, <laughs> pretty and ugly. You know they they don't really go together, or somebody something was fairly unjust. You know, highly fairly unjust. You know, um, there are other expressions too. Um, uh, to be strongly weak or weakly strong or massively small. I mean, and th these are oxymorons. I don't see the oxymoron in this particular formulation. I think what the individual is referring to is the fact that it, it doesn't make sense to be concerned about Francis saying, you know, judge for yourself whether you want to go or not. I think is what he's saying is what difference does it make because it's invalid anyway, as he's pointing out. And uh, I would say, yeah, in fact, uh, you know, there's a very strong case that it is. And personally, I, I, hope, I, I mean, I hope it is because I see what they do. And I hear about what they do with the host in those Novus Ordos. And the very thought of them handing it out and particles falling and people walking all over the floor where the particles are falling and nobody cares. It seems nobody cares. Um, <clears throat> certainly the celebrant, the clergyman, the presbyter doesn't care. Um so yeah, let's uh, you know let's take the the best option that it is totally null and void and uh, and invalid. Okay, mm -hmm. I fear that in occasion it can be because there are some more conservative clergymen in the Novus Ordo who realize the faults of the of the Novus Ordo and try to fix it up because they feel they have to kind of uh, repair it as they go along to make it valid. But then I would ask that person, if you feel that you have to amend the Novus Ordo as you're going along saying it, to, to, to just be confident that it's valid, what are you doing? <laughs> Guaranteeing that the bread becomes the body of, blood of, body of Christ, the wine becomes the blood of Christ, and subjecting our Lord's personal physical presence there in the Blessed Sacrament to that atrocity, 
So do you realize what you're doing here? Again, it reminds me of the bridge over the River Kwai. But anyway, that's another story. But in any case, um, but here we have the question of why, why care what he says about this? Sure, let Lutherans go up to receive it. Let Anglicans go up to receive it, as Francis himself says. He knows it's happening in Argentina, and he thinks it's wonderful. And he has these uh, Novus Ordo Catholics going to the, uh, the, uh, the Anglican service and receiving there. He thinks it's just great. He says that his congregation for the doctrine of the faith knows all about it, you know, and is perfectly happy about it. Yeah, there's an admission there. What this gentleman is saying is true. Uh, Francis is saying it, not just this gentleman, not just you, not just I. Francis is saying the same thing. So the question is, um, why do we care? Well, the question why do we care is because the attitude simply illustrates the modernist Novus Ordo attitude. His statement of letting a Lutheran just decide whether or not she feels qualified to go up to see, receive the Eucharist is essentially an abdication on his part. His point that he made to her was, I'm, I'm not a theologian. Ask the theologians. Okay, so now the church is governed by theologians, right? Well, okay, I would say, Francis, Francis is a very honest, honorable man. Tells the truth, right? Sort of like Brutus was an honorable man in the uh, speech of Mark Anthony, right? An honorable man, after they knife Caesar to death. I would say Francis is an honorable man, because he speaks the truth here. He's not a theologian. And basically what he's saying, he's not qualified to answer this woman's question because in his church, the theologians are the supreme authority. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what he's saying is, ask them whether you're qualified to receive the sacrament. He's essentially saying, I don't have the authority of a pope. Implicitly, I mean, almost as explicitly as you can, and as implicit as you can get, um, how about I put this, there's a very fine line between being implicit and explicit. Mm -hmm. When he says, I don't have the authority to tell you that. Basically, what he's actually saying is, I do not have the authority of the Pope to tell you this, and uh, go ask the theologians. Uh, you, you know, I'm sorry, it might be a very poor analogy, but imagine somebody coming to our Lord and saying, Oh Lord, you know, um, <clears throat> is it lawful for a man to put away his wife and take another? And our Lord's saying, How do I know? I'm just, I'm just Jesus of Nazareth. Um, go ask Peter and Paul, uh, well, James and John, go ask the apostles. Uh, they're, they're the theologians, you know. Don't ask me, I can't tell you that. I don't have the authority to tell you that. Imagine our Lord doing that. I mean, that, that's outrageous, you know. And well, how could somebody who is supposed, supposed to be the vicar of Christ on earth, whose very purpose is to tell people, give people answers to those questions, right? Uh, say something like that, unless he's actually telling you, look, I, I'm, I'm abdicating. Uh, I, I renounce the papacy if I've ever had it. I reject the office of the papacy. Certainly, one could say, okay, well, he, maybe he's just rejecting the responsibility. Wait a minute, wait a minute. He says, I can't tell you. He's saying he doesn't have the authority, not just the responsibility. He's saying, I don't have the the, the means necessary to answer that question. Mm -hmm. I do not have the authority to answer that question. Mm -hmm. That's that's very telling. Yeah. So I think um, that although I agree with this gentleman, and I hope it's true that the Novus Ordo is 
would always and everywhere be invalid. I fear there are more conservative uh, presbyters among the Novus Ordo who are trying to doctor it up to make it valid. A worst case scenario. And, uh, but generally I would say, yes, it is invalid. That's just bread and wine they're passing around up there. But it does matter that Francis is telling Lutherans to decide for themselves whether they should go and receive it or not. Uh, because essentially, again, he's making a very serious admission about the non-Catholicism mm -hmm. of himself and his and his church and his religion. Father, I, I think it's even worse than that. Um, rather than him just uh, ceding this authority to the theologians, it seems that he would tell the theologians to check with the people, and so uh, in a sense, he, he, he's affecting. Good point, though. He's mm. affecting this uh, this totally decentralized church where it functions from the bottom up and it's, it's a democracy. That's a very good point because he did he did actually after saying the theologians theologians talk to the theologians he did sell, tell her to decide for herself. Exactly. You're right he did mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. But let's move on father because there's another question here uh, in regards to these invalid sacraments that, that we're speaking of here. So the viewer asked where does the obligation begin and end for the layman when warning people about the Novus Ordo in invalid sacraments, can this become a scandal somehow? Well, it is a scandal, of course. When, when would you have an obligation to warn people? Mm -hmm, I definitely. think you have an obligation to warn them if they are in danger. I mean, look, when do you have an obligation to tell Lutheran you're following the wrong religion? Right? When do you have an obligation to tell an atheist you know, you're in danger because you're denying, denying the existence of God, who will judge you, and has, has an absolute right to your faith? Uh, when do you tell somebody standing on the railroad tracks the train is coming get off the tracks? You know? uh, this is an obligation in charity, to say the least, often an obligation in justice too, because there's a strict obligation in justice to warn people. For me as a priest, right, if I have somebody come to me and ask me uh, a question, I have an obligation to try to give them a good answer, you know, as good as, as good an answer as I can get. And I have an obligation to represent the church and the church's faith uh, because of the holy orders that have been entrusted to me. So uh, it's not only an obligation in charity towards these souls, which can be every bit as much as an obligation in justice. If the obligation, what about the, the Catholic layman? You know, what is the obligation to warn someone? For example, what, what obligation would you have to warn people in your own family? who either are following a false religion or at least falling away from the true religion. Well, you would consider that to be an obligation not only in charity, but an obligation out of piety to tell the members of your own family because, yes, you do have a certain obligation in justice to their souls, for their souls, right? So I think it's a matter of uh, love and uh, when I say love, I mean a divine love, charity. We have an obligation to be concerned about the salvation of all souls. This is what has motivated the church in her missionary efforts throughout the centuries. Mm -hmm. If one wants to ask himself, well, what obligation will we have to speak the truth and tell people they're on the wrong track and tell them what, what the right, the truth is? I would say, if you want to ask that question, ask the church, examine her centuries of missionary activity, examine the testimony of the martyrs, and um, the religious orders that were established precisely for that purpose, to take the faith to um, uh, those who did not have faith, and even very hostile to those who did, um, 
And you'll, you'll have your answer right there. That's a better answer that I can give. But also, I would tell them, it's really not only a matter of love for souls, it's a matter of love for Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, the martyrs who gave their lives were motivated by love for Christ and souls, but primarily a love for Christ. Mm-hmm. And the missionaries who went off on their missionary endeavors were concerned to gain souls for Christ. So that was the primary love that motivated them. And it should be the primary love that motivates us too. Then, Father, let's move on to the practical application of this idea. So, how should a person communicate their belief of the invalidity to others when some say there is only doubt in the validity? Um, and I like this. They, they write in and say, Is not true kindness and love warning with straight talk? It sometimes hurts to hear the truth, does it not? Yes. <laughs> I would say, well said. It does, clearly, you know. Um, and the more necessary... The more necessary it is, the more it will hurt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, so, um, you know, to tell the delightful truth by praising somebody or flattering somebody or telling what he wants to hear it can be very dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it takes a great deal of moral courage, which draws upon divine charity, to tell the truth. Unfortunately, you know, when you talk about zeal, Zealous domus tue comedit me, the love of thy house, O Lord, has consumed me, uh, was applied to our Lord, right, when he drove the money changers from the temple. Uh, they didn't find this a pleasant experience at all, you know, they were rather upset about this, clearly, and they were doing, who is this, who is this, who's doing this, and the plots to kill our Lord were definitely uh, moved forward by this experience, you know, by his enemies. But our Lord would tell the truth. And my father's house is a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. Um, the, um, the unpleasant truth is, is the hardest to tell uh, because it requires a, a real sacrifice, choice which always demands love. But uh, our Lord was always willing and ready to tell that, you know, and to stand by it, never to explain it away. And people either had to take it or not. Unless you eat the flesh of the men of the son of God, God son of men, and uh, you will not have life in you. Our Lord makes that very clear. And when they walked away, he watched them walk away, and then invited the apostles to walk away. Right? Um, what God has joined together, little men put asunder. Right? And so they ground their teeth at him and, and went away muttering that they were, you know, plotted his death. You know, but our Lord simply spoke the truth. The truth they needed to hear. A hard they wanted saying. to hear it. A hard saying, that's what they say. So a lot of truth is a hard saying. Okay? It's good you pointed that out. But, you know, there is a, there is a zeal that is motivated by charity. There is also what is called a bitter zeal. And a bitter zeal is motivated by pride. And that's looking for conquest. You will yield, you know. Uh, there are those who might say to me, uh, or to you, how, well, you know, what arrogance you have in thinking that you're right. And then some people would say, well, I'm right, and you're wrong, and that's all there is to it. And, you know, their purpose is <coughs> to be right and to win the argument. And that's going to give rise to a bitter zeal out of pride. But others who are not concerned about winning the argument, they'd rather lose the argument and win the brother, their brother's soul. If, by, uh, if, if, if they could admit there were things that they said that were wrong and it would help their opponent 
accept faith, they would freely do it because much more important than being right themselves and credited with a victory is bringing the person to understand the truth, you know, mm -hmm. such that a martyr would actually lay out his life for the conversion of some poor erring soul. So you have these people who are arguing uh, points of the faith with others, a traditional Catholic with a Novus Ordo, or a Catholic, a traditional Catholic with a, a non-Catholic, with a Lutheran or, a, or even a non-Christian, like a Buddhist and so on. And if they get angry and, and frustrated and uh, just because they're being contradicted, um, they're speaking out of pride. And uh, they start uttering threats and resorting to ad hominem arguments and, and so on. Uh, then again, you know, that's somebody speaking out of pride. He's really lost the, lost the point or missed the point entirely. But when you see somebody who's dealing, coming from a standpoint of divine charity, there's such a, a dramatic difference in what he says and how he says it. Then someone who is motivated by a bitter zeal. Mm -hmm. So uh, the moral of the story here is that if we're going to actually go and talk to people about the truth, we have to be motivated by a love for God and always, always remind ourselves of that. Mm -hmm. Not let our pride get in the way. Because yeah. the devil wants to draw us upside. We may be motivated by a love for God and divine charity when we begin the conversation. What the devil is going to try to do is get us off track onto matters of our own pride and make our pride feel wounded so that our entire focus shifts that way. And we have to resolutely resist that. Mm -hmm. We cannot let Satan do that. Yeah. Um, we have to continually return to uh, the, the real interest for the, our Lord gaining a soul and the benefit of the soul we're, we're engaging. Mm -hmm. that's, a, uh, that's a great point, Father. I think that really hits home for me. But, uh, but let's, let, let's finish up with this one last email, just a, a few brief questions here. Um, so this viewer asks, Dear Father, since Vatican II, we were given the new Pentecost, the new order of the Mass, the new code of canon law, the new catechism, new evangelization, and probably a few other news that I have missed. Did the crafters of all these new things insert the word new to denote that it is the current form, or is there a clear strategy to frequently apply this word to everything they have changed and introduced? Well, sometimes they've used the word restored, like with the new, with the Holy Week rite, back in the middle 1950s, they talk about that being a restoration mm -hmm. of the past practice of the church. Well, there are some past practices that they did reintroduce or restore with that. But basically what it actually was, was a, um, a cutting down, a cutting back of the traditional practice. So uh, in simplifying it, turning it around, um, uh, it wasn't just a matter of changing the time of day, you know, from morning to evening for, let's say, Holy Thursday, um, Easter Vigil ceremonies. It was much more than that. They changed a lot of... Uh, the, the ceremony itself has changed. Mm -hmm. And they may say, well, you know, in the early days of the church, the Easter Vigil ceremonies would have been over the night of Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. And, you know, they might have a good argument for that. Certainly, you know, we're not disputing that. But they changed the ceremony itself rather dramatically. And uh, 
we can actually talk about that sometime. We can't talk about it right now, but regardless, um, this is, I'm just saying that they sometimes refer to that as it's kind of a restoration of the early practices of the church. Sometimes, even honestly, to cover for the fact that many, much of the time, not honestly, but they talk about hand communion as being a restoration of the early practice of the church. Well, if you want to talk about it that way, um, they um, the church early on rejected that practice, and for good reason. She found that um, it did place the sacredness of the sacred species you know, in danger, and uh, found early on, I should say, that giving communion the way we do is the right. You can look, you can look at the Latin rite, you can look at the Eastern rite, you can find that both of those, going back centuries and centuries, took away this, this hand communion business. Um, and there was probably no, no doubt for the same reason, because they found that it was uh, ripe for problems, serious problems, that attacked the, the sacredness of the Holy Eucharist. Now, um, but the, again, the modernists like to say they're restoring the old practices. Father, is that the idea of uh, archaeologism? Archaeologism, which, in the uh, liturgy. Pope yeah. Pius XII condemned, does, does that apply here? It does, certainly, yeah. To, bring, to claim to bring back the old practices. Okay. The modernists uh, don't, they, they try to disguise the changes early on under the aspect of a return to the primitive practices of the church. To go back to the primitive church is what they were saying. And this gave them some pretext for saying, well, this is a Catholic practice that was lost. The church went astray. Now we're restoring the primitive practices. So this really is true Christianity. And during the Middle Ages and, and all, the, the church went, went off, off the beam. Now we're bringing you back to true Christianity. This is not a new idea. Martin Luther was claiming the same thing with his newfangled ideas. So Martin Luther was introducing this, this, this idea that had been condemned by the church for a, a long, long time, <coughs> hundreds and hundreds of years. But he presents that as kind of a restoration of the original Christianity that he has just rediscovered after all this time. Yeah. All the scoundrels have done this. The modernists have right reached for this too. When the modernists actually cannot give any plausible, uh, no matter how far, far-fetched, any argument in favor of some new practice they want to introduce, they, they talk about as starting a new tradition. Okay. okay, now how can it be a tradition if it's something new? Oxymoron. Because it has, that's, there you are, there's an oxymoron, <laughs> a prime example. A new tradition. What they're saying is, they're starting a new tradition, they're starting to that they want to become yeah. traditional. That's a new practice they want to begin. They don't even pretend that this was a primitive practice of the church. Um, so actually, uh, early on, they were talking about restoring primitive practices in order to get people to swallow the poison with the, with the medicine or whatever. But uh, lately now, over the last 70 years, they, they, they've begun to introduce starting a new tradition as of this is, this is, we're making a new beginning here. Mm -hmm. Father, one last question here. The other day, I was thinking the following. An alcoholic or drug addict consumes their preferred substance because they initially get enjoyment and satisfaction from it. And then after some time, they come to the realization that the substance they are consuming is damaging certain organs and therefore slowly killing their entire body. 
Even though they lament the situation that they are in, they cannot help but continue to consume or take the substance. They will not let it go. I was thinking that this analogy could also be applied to modernism, as I believe that is a spiritually suicidal drug. For example, someone like Benedict XVI, who as Ratzinger, it is claimed, embraced modernism around the time of the council, and who later on, as Benedict XVI, spoke often of his lament of the whole crisis in the church, particularly as a result of a bad interpretation of the council and a banal uh, liturgy. But it is clear that even though he knew all this, he could not let go of the council and the modernist principles that it promulgated. There are many other prelates around the world who would also fit this analogy on whom many traditional Catholics rely upon for guidance. What are your thoughts on this, Father? I think he's right. I think it's, it's well said. Um, I like, you know, the banal liturgy is actually being very uh, kind because <laughs> that's the least you can say about this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, with regard to um, uh, Ratzinger, uh, Benedict, um, he says he embraced modernism about the time of the council. Well, he, he brought modernism, modernist principles to the council yeah. with him. Uh, so he didn't just become modernist at the time of the council. Um, there, there are those who say, and I think rightly so, that after uh, Karl Rahner, he, he was probably the, the most influential um, modernist at the council. I mean, one can argue about Chenu and others, but I think you'd have to say that Ratzinger carried a lot of weight there. Uh, especially because, you know, he's the, he's the paritus for a very important cardinal church. Uh, this theological advisor, expert, uh, to someone very influential at the council. Now, um, I think, I think what he says is right, though. Analogy with the drug, you know, you experience this, you get this euphoria, and you're chasing it after that. You want to experience it again. You know, you can't, as though you want to relive this original heady experience, you know. But you find out that the drugs you're taking are actually killing you. They're destroying you from within. In, in this case, what they're doing is destroying faith. St. Pius X said it very well in, in Pashendi. He says, the modernists lay the axe to the very root of faith, the very virtue of faith in the soul. They destroy the very concept of faith. A modernist can say, I believe in the Immaculate Conception. I believe in the real presence. I believe in this. I believe in that. But... And it sounds good, but they, what they're saying is about belief. It's not the same as what you mean by belief. Uh, it's not faith as the Catholic Church has defined it. Uh, it's, it's faith in the modernist sense. You know? So um, <clears throat> they may believe in all these things, and yet it's not really the virtue of faith, because modernism has simply uh, destroyed you know, withered away what we know as the real virtue of faith and so on. So um, there is it, the time when somebody realizes this is happening. I think an example of somebody who realized it later on was uh, Jacques Maritain, the philosopher, who in the peasant of the Garonne uh, acknowledged that things had gone wrong, even, even terribly wrong. Uh, not quoting him, but he acknowledged that something had gone wrong with the, the, the heady expectations after Vatican II and what actually happened. Uh, although he was somewhat surprised, honestly, you know, that he really did expect that this was going to be a good thing and was extremely disappointed and let down. He wasn't saying that it was due to a bad interpretation of Vatican II at the time that I recall in the book, 
um, I don't know that he was saying that what we're witnessing are the necessary consequences of these principles that were laid down at Vatican II. I don't know that he was saying that either. Just that the practical result of Vatican II was a great disappointment to him. So uh, it, it gave the impression that he was rethinking this, you know. Now, there are traditional priests who went along with Vatican II, who implemented things, accepted the new Mass, and got so many years down the road, and they began to realize this is doing what this man says the drug was doing. It's like eating as an acid away at people's faith. Even the, the individual priest might have thought, it's eating like an acid at my faith. And so realizing what was happening, some of these priests actually turned back to the traditional faith again. And uh, because th their faith had not been destroyed by modernism, but they realized that it was getting at the point where it, modernism was threatening their faith. And when they had that choice to make, whether to go through and make that next step down the modernist path, or to retreat, retrieve their steps, as it were, back to the faith again, they decided to go back to the faith. It's almost like somebody going over an archway to a foreign land, you know, like across this huge chasm. And he gets out on this, on this archway or this bridge a certain distance and then realizes, wait a minute, this isn't safe. I mean, this is crumbling under my feet. And so he has to decide, am I going to plunge full speed forward and try to make it to the other side? Or am I going to turn and run back to terra firma, you know? And some actually decided, no, I, you know, what's lying ahead here is wrong. I see where this ends. And he, <clears throat> you know, dives head first back onto, onto solid ground of the faith. There are a number of clergymen who are now traditional Catholic priests who've done exactly that. Um, so they're the ones who realized, this is killing me. I've got to stop taking the, dose, the daily dose of arsenic. Because if I don't, I will be dead. Mm -hmm. My faith will be dead. Um... But there are those who have kind of acquired a taste for arsenic. And um, they've convinced themselves that going back is impossible because of all the, the, the nonsense of the Novus Ordo, where you can't turn the clock black back and all that sort of stuff. Of course you can turn the clock black. Who would buy a clock that you couldn't turn back <clears throat> if it went wrong? You know, I mean, that's nonsense. Of course you have reset the clock if it goes wrong. So... Um, if someone has gone off the track, I mean, that's like saying to somebody, well, you can't go back to the right path, you know? So you have to stick with the path, right? Even if it's leading you to hell, you have to stick with it because you can't go back. But that is not what our Lord said. Quite the contrary. Um, so in any case, um, again, it's a matter of finding your way through the fog of the modernist nonsense and, uh, and, and back to, to the faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, to the solid ground of the faith, and that's Catholic tradition. To practice the traditional faith is the key. That's what we have to do, and what we have to ask others. That's what we have to plead with others to do. That's what we have to insist is the only way to, to serve God right now. Otherwise, you're going down the so-called primrose path, uh, that, that broad way that leads to destruction, called modernism. Mm -hmm. The fog of nonsense that is modernism. Right. I like that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, well, thanks for being here tonight, Father. I think this has been a great program, and we, we've, oh. covered, we've covered a lot of ground. So Thank you, Tom. I, I appreciate, appreciate it. That. And thanks to our writers here. I, I hope this is of some uh, benefit to, to them, and I, I just want them to know that even if I don't answer their question, mm -hmm. I still pray for them and thank them for writing it. Absolutely.
Well, thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.